some companies, you know, they will spend the money to protect their IP because that's something that they're, that's, that's integral. You can't, you know, risk the IP. Like that's something we have to have buttoned down, but yet they'll want to risk it all when it comes to advertising. They're like, oh yeah, no, we'll just deal with that later. <laughs> like that's fine. You know, as though it's not, you know, an, an entire area of law with like, you know, experts that you need to bring in. Um, so my, you know, everything that I recommend is always getting legal involved right at the beginning before you even started to think about what your ad campaign will look like or what you want to say. Just when you have your product, that's when you bring in your advertising counsel because they need to understand and know what it is that you want to, you know, sell and just, just take, stop you from going down a bad path right from the beginning. Um, and also help you develop the right kind of support. There's so many times that I see companies that it's clear that they had a study or a test or something that they did not for the purposes of advertising substantiation. Perhaps it was to get some sort of FDA approval. It was part of their 510k submission. It's, you know, something that exists and they want to just run with it. They're like, aha, this is the study. And now I'm going to make claims and we have a study. Um, and they don't think about whether or not that fits with the the ultimate thing that they want to say in their advertising. And, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes you'll have evidence, it'll be good evidence, but it's not good for the purpose of claim substantiation. So again, you know, kind of having counsel involved from the beginning is important because maybe you only, you know, need to do a small study to prove your equivalence to the FDA because it's such a product that's been in the market and you just need to, you know, do something kind of small to, uh, you know, to support your application, but you want to make a big, broad claim um, afterwards, you know, that small study might not be sufficient. You know, you might need to bulk it up if you're going to then use that same study in the future. Or, you know, if you want to say something that's outside of the, you know, kind of constrictions of what your um, 510k says, then, mm -hmm. you know, maybe add it in right then, you know, do a little extra and do that up front rather than later on you are trying to make a claim and it's like, oh, if we had just asked them, you know, one more question or just put in a little bit more into the original study, then we would be in much better footing. So I always say start with counsel. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the Message Engineer Podcast. I'm Maureen Schaefer, your host, and we're here today with Latoya Sutton, who is a senior attorney at the National Advertising Division of the Better Business Bureau. Uh, I had the opportunity to see Latoya at a Viva conference and was so impressed with her uh, thoughtful insights that I invited to share some of those here with us today. She's been a lawyer around the advertising claims and compliance category uh, for the last 15 years. So welcome, LaToya. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. 
So uh, with this, we start with uh, what I call define the word warm up. And so I'll offer up a couple of words and want to hear your reflection on kind of what, what do they mean to you? Okay. Um, so I'll start with one of my favorites, which is messaging. Oh, messaging. That's my, that's my bread and butter, you know, <laughs> that's, that's everything. Um, when I think about messaging, I think the first thing that comes to mind is uh, misinterpretation because there's always kind of the message that an advertiser wants to convey. And then there's the message that the uh, consumer is getting. And then there's the message that your uh, competitors think your advertising is conveying. And so, you know, when people talk about messaging, you know, sometimes it seems as though like that there's only one thing. But really, you know, if you're not careful, it can be multiple things. And so, messaging to me just means, you know, pay attention and, you know, don't get too focused on one thing because there could be multiple interpretations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great, great answer. Many people have different points of view on uh, how they interpret it coming across and that becomes really critical to think through. Yeah. Uh, marketing. Marketing. Um, you know, I think, uh, that's so broad. Um, I think about the fact that it's so dynamic, you know, marketing is not one thing and it's not static. It's always changing. Um, it's really just a, you know, constant variation of what, it could be and what it is at any moment in time. So I, I think of evolution. I think of, you know, the history of advertising, really. It just all collapses into that one word because it's always something new and interesting and exciting. And that's really what has motivated my career for all these years. The fact that this is not one static category. There's always something new and something interesting and something dynamic going on when it comes to marketing. And so, um, you know, companies always have to be thinking about new ways to reach their consumers and always have to be, you know, kind of changing with the times. It's very exciting, I guess. <laughs> There's no, I couldn't agree with you more on the dynamic nature of, of marketing and advertising and how it continues to change. So great, great points you bring up there. Um, claim. <laughs> uh, claim. I, you know, I think that they are tricky. <laughs> I, you know, the, 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 you know, something that's been top of mind for me recently is what is a claim and, you know, how is that word changing? We recently at the National Advertising Division had a case that revolved solely around an emoji and whether an emoji was a claim. Wow. Did that convey a message to a consumer? And so, you know, claim to me, it's sort of like, you know, what's the next thing? What's the next 
iteration of consumer messaging that's going to come up. Um, you know, if an emoji could be a claim, then you know what else? Uh, so I think that's that's the first thing that popped into my head. <laughs> yeah, great. That's a great example. I would have never thought of an emoji being considered a claim, but that's the whole point, right? Is it? It's an emotion, right? It's supposed yeah. to convey an emotion. So what does that mean in the context in which it's served up, right? Right. Exactly. Fascinating. Oh, that's so well laid. All right. I'll be interested to read more about that. Um, so if we, if we kind of jump off from that, that point of claims, um, what do you consider for some of the folks, particularly in the kind of the digital health space, in the software space, and there's this kind of intersection where software can become a medical device, right? There's so much, so I mean, software is so pervasive. Right. Um, how do we start thinking about and how should some of those you know, folks in digital health and consumer health uh, think about claims? What, what are they? How should they decide what they are? How should they substantiate them? Could you talk us a little bit through how you determine what is a claim uh, in the space and what is not? Sure. Um, so I think before we figure out what is a claim, we should take a step back and think about what is advertising, because mm. that kind of, you know, takes over, you know, claims. Um, and there are several different uh, definitions that could be used to, to uh, define advertising. The one that we use at the National Advertising Division that I think is kind of the easiest to understand and is a pretty, you know, fair one is any commercial speech um, that is for the purpose of inducing someone to buy something or that your service is useful. Um, and that's it. You know, anything that you're basically putting out there to convince people, hey, buy this thing, use my service, use my product, this is good, you know, that is mm -hmm. advertising. And so, you start from there and you see that it's pretty broad. So then a claim is each individual message that is part of your advertising, each individual point of reference of why something is good, why something should be purchased, why some product should be used. And so when you look at it that way, you know, it's pretty broad. Like there's a lot of things that could be advertising. Um, and that's why you kind of have to, you know, kind of not think of it in a very granule, like, oh, if I use these words, then it's a claim. Or if I, you know, specifically put it in this place on, you know, the product package, okay, that's mm -hmm. something. It's really bigger than that, um, especially now when the way that we communicate has evolved so much over the past few decades. You know, there was a time when people thought of advertising and they're thinking of, you know, a print ad in the newspaper, they're thinking of a commercial on TV, they're thinking of a radio ad, and like, that's it. But you know, just looking at the way that advertising has evolved and the lexicon around advertising. Now you have blogs and you have advertorials and you have social media and you have 
TikToks and, you know, everything <laughs> is out there. You have to really think about, you know, what your medium is and what you're doing to convince people to value your product. Um, so start big with that. And um, from there, it's just really, are you saying something that's, again, trying to induce somebody to value your product. It doesn't matter where you're saying it. That's kind of the key thing. It's not like limited to those, you know, specific media anymore. If you're on your Instagram and you're the founder of a startup and you're talking to consumers and saying like, hey, look at this new technology that we've developed. It's going to help you X, Y, Z. Um, that's advertising because you're the founder of the company. So you have a commercial interest in this you know, company and you're telling people something about your product that you're saying like, hey, this is something you can depend on. This is something that you know is supported. Uh, so that could be advertising. You know, like you really have to kind of look beyond the you know kind of previous bounds of what's traditional when it comes to advertising and making a claim. So mm -hmm. I think that answers the first part of your question, but I think there was more that you wanted me to talk about. Uh, one of the things I think is really interesting is you bring up this idea of where doesn't matter and mm -hmm. the context of, hey, they may not be saying something that we might, can, may not look like an ad, like, right. you know, radio, TV, print ad, may not look like an ad, may not look like an obvious commercial, um, but it is because of who's saying it, what their I'll say biases are what their mm -hmm. interests are, perhaps, right? What their right. commercial interests may be. Um, and that in and of itself uh, can make it a claim. Right. Um, we recently had a case where it was a small startup. It was a cleaning company, but, you know, this kind of mm -hmm. uh, uh, applies all across the board. They would mm -hmm. do um, Instagram lives and they were talking about their product and why it was, uh, in this case, good for the environment. And mm -hmm. they were talking about, you know, it does, it provides XYZ benefits and, you know, their competitors, they can't offer that or, you know, they don't use these types of chemicals and you'll find that in other products and that's not good for the environment and, you know, kind of went on like that. And they didn't actually have evidence that their competitors were bad for the environment. It was sort of the founder's personal beliefs that, you know, they didn't want to use certain chemicals personally. They founded the company to avoid those chemicals. Um, mm -hmm. And they had their own beliefs on why those chemicals were bad. But that's kind of personal. But when you say that on your company's Instagram about your product, now you've taken mm -hmm. your personal passion and made it into advertising. And, you know, anything that you say in advertising, you need to have a reasonable basis for any claim that you make, any message that you convey, anything that's not obvious opinion, like, you know, I like 
potato chips, you know, <laughs> anything that is not, you know, very, very obviously just, you know, very personal. Mm -hmm. You need support for it. You need to have a reason why you can say that and it's true. Um, so I think that, you know, that company got in trouble because they were just saying like, no, we just, they're gross chemicals. We don't like them. It's like, well, that's fine, but you can't say your product is better just because you think that the other company's product is gross. Like there needs to be something more. And so that's where, you know, kind of they thought, I don't know, social media was different for some reason, but it's not. It really, it really is about what you're conveying to the people who could be your consumers. Right. It's at what's in that message and Two of the things that struck me from when you first were defining claims were commercial and inducement. So like, right. is the intention commercial, right? You're trying to make money, sell something, move people in a certain direction, uh, you know, to generate revenue or influence or otherwise. And um, I think this idea of evidence is more obvious to some of the folks in medical devices. But I also think that that idea of reasonable basis, it seems to me as I've watched some of the things over the years from the FDA, from the FTC, certainly DOJ, whom you hopefully, right? Yeah. <laughs> want to be on the other side of that conversation, um, has evolved over time. Right. And what are some of the things that, where you see, like you use this example of the Instagram Live and the founder in talking about this uh, and needing, needing evidence? What, what is a reasonable basis of evidence? And how do you put that forth on an IG Live? Should you be running citations at the end of your IG Live? Should you put it in the caption? Um, can you put like data on file or you can request it from the company? What, what, what kind of like, how do you tell people that you have mm -hmm. evidence? And then what, what types of evidence for what types of claims are, is appropriate? Okay. Um, so there are two parts to that. A reasonable basis is a flexible standard, which just means that no, you you're not sure what it is unless you have it. Um, right. So that can be good and that can be bad. Um, I mm -hmm. think one thing to remember is that with advertising, when you tell a consumer something, it is assumed that you have a reasonable basis for that message. So you don't necessarily have to tell the consumer, you know, I, my product is 50% more effective than the competitors. And here's the, you know, evidence that I have for that. Once you mm -hmm. tell them that it's presumed that you have it, you just have to make sure you have it somewhere in case, you know, you get a challenge or mm -hmm. the FTC comes knocking or somebody asks for it. You just have to have it right. some way somewhere. Um, and so what is a reasonable basis? It depends on what claim you're making. So there are going to be different levels of what's reasonable to support a claim, depending on um, the claim. So for example, if you're making a claim that you're the number one doctor recommended medical device for a certain category, you're going to need a survey, a national survey of doctors that use that 
type of equipment saying that you are the best and the most recommended. Mm -hmm. If you say that you are clinically proven to do something, well, then you're going to need clinical tests that demonstrate that you're able to, you know, do whatever you are claiming you're able to do. If you're Mm -hmm. saying that, you know, you're more effective than your competitor, again, you're going to need evidence that's head to head testing that shows that you are more effective than whatever competitor that you are naming. Um, It all, you know, it kind of depends. I think in the the medical device and the healthcare space, it's always going to be a pretty high level of support. You know, um, there 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 are going to be clinical studies involved. If you're saying that you know you're doing something to the human body, you're enhancing it, or you're helping it, or just something, um, mm-hmm. you're going to need clinical evidence that's on human beings, unless that is for some you know scientific reason not feasible, and then you're going to need whatever experts in the area think is feasible. But Mm -hmm. being that most medical devices are making health-related claims, are making claims about the human body, you're going to need really robust evidence about about the human body if you're going to make claims. Again, those are sort of efficacy claims that, you know, you're doing Mm -hmm. something to humans you know, an animal study probably isn't going to cut it. So again, it really depends if you're just saying that, like, you know, we, our customers give us five-star reviews. Okay. You're not going to need a study for that. You're going to need some evidence of that you're getting five-star reviews and that they're coming mm-hmm. you know, not because you gave them free product, but just, you know, <laughs> generally, um, you know, a whole that's different a type of inducement. Exactly. That's a, that's a whole different thing. But again, really it's, it's what your claim conveys and the message that drives what a reasonable basis is. You know, if you say you're the number one recommended um, medical device in a category versus the number one recommended sunscreen, two completely different categories of products, but the evidence that you need in terms of, you know, whether it's a robust survey of doctors, that's the same. Because again, it's about the claim that you're making not about necessarily, you know, what product it is or who your audience is. It's about matching the evidence to the claim. Uh, great. Matching the evidence to the claim, the strength of the claim should point you and point folks in the direction of the strength of the evidence required. Right. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so can you can you share? You talked about this, uh, the founder, and then the cleaning solutions, et cetera, and the IG lives, the Instagram lives. Um, can you talk a little bit about the risks to startup companies? Because I, I've been uh, part of companies where they think, "Hey, we're under the radar. We're small. People aren't really paying attention to us yet. We need to be kind of loud and bold." And I'm all about being loud and bold, like. With evidence. Yes. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about the kind of upside and downside of managing risk around claims and advertising and, and marketing? 
for startups. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's really, it is really hard because, you know, startups do often want to make a splash and you mm-hmm. might think that you're under the radar, but uh, if you are cutting into somebody else's market share, I believe me, you are on the radar. Um, you know, the the work that we do here at the National Advertising Division is uh, very much often fueled by um, competitor challenges. And, you know, mm-hmm. we keep everything in on as equal footing as we can, but we do get challenges that are brought from by companies who are saying, you know, here's this startup, they are eating into our market share. And it's because they're making these claims that no one else is making because they probably can't support them, you know, Um, and sometimes we find they can and sometimes we find they can't. And so I, you know, if you're trying to make a splash, you're going to get somebody's attention, (laughs) you know, and if it's not your competitors, then it's going to be a regulator, um, either something like the Federal Trade Commission or us at the National Advertising Division, because, you know, regulators are people too. You know, we're out there, we're being consumers, we are seeing things and saying like, hey, hmm. That's interesting. Like you've caught my attention as a consumer and hey, I now have put on my regulator hat and you've caught my attention as a regulator. Mm-hmm. And you know, you just don't want that type of attention if you don't have all your claims buttoned up. You know, we've seen mm-hmm. so many startups um both at the federal level and at the state level and and even here at NAD where they make a claim that, you know, seems too good to be true. And, you know, you're hearing about it everywhere on the news and people are talking about it. And then, you know, 11 months later, you find out there was a Federal Trade Commission (laughs) investigation. And now they can't say, you know, half of the things that they were saying before, whether it's, you know, something you sprinkle on your food to lose weight or a certain type of shoe that just by walking around you lose weight or, you know, just any type of thing that, you know, if it's if it's too good to be true, just don't say that in your advertising because, um, you know, whatever brand equity that you build it's at risk. It's going to go away, you know, just in the snap of the fingers if it's found out that you have been misleading consumers. So why put in all that work? Why, you know, all the blood, sweat and tears that it takes to start a company and put it at risk um, just to kind of get ahead in the short term? Great. Great points about uh, startups being on the radar of the competitors or folks whom they're targeting yeah. to take business from. Uh, I've been on the receiving end of some of those. I called them love letters. <laughs> so having spent many, many years in startups, a lot of the billion-dollar global companies, yeah, I would get <clears throat> wait, one company in particular, the general <laughs> counsel, would send me, I called them love letters. Yeah. <laughs> and then he'd call me and we'd have a chat. And, I would agree to tweak a couple things. Yeah. Uh, I always viewed it as we must be doing something to make some inroads if they're bothering to spend the time. Uh, and on the same token, it made us better about what we did. Yeah. And how we put it forth and how we, how we said it. So uh, it was a, yeah, we improved what we did. But 
I do that risk in early stage companies can be who are burning cash, who are, you know, venture backed. It doesn't take much to kind of flip them on their head. Yeah. They find themselves kind of sideways with some of these things. So great, great insights on ways to avoid that. So what do you, this, and this may be a little bit too in the, in the weeds for you, but when you talk about kind of evidence and substantiation, uh, I've dealt with, I, I, I come out of engineering, so I have like half of a very rectilinear brain and half of like more of a visionary creative brain. So I've always been very uh, kind of thoughtful about documenting everything and making sure we had all of our ducks in a row um, as it relates to claims and marketing and things like this. And I find that startups go anywhere from, uh, well, we don't. You know, if I had to have people, I had someone say to me the other day, if I had to have people sign off on my marketing, it would never be signed off. So I just do it. <laughs> and, then, and then I'm like, oh my goodness, you need to do something about that. And all the way to, um, you know, it takes us six months to get a, some simple thing through kind of the process. Um, what do you think is kind of the appropriate level or some like best practices around substanti- internal substantiation or collection of evidence around some of these claims? How do you think people can be more startups, be more thoughtful about it without becoming overly, um, you know, slowed down? What are some ways to do it well and kind of at a, a reasonable speed? Yeah, I think there's, you know, you kind of touch on this thing where some companies, you know, they will spend the money to protect their IP because that's something that they're, that's, that's integral. You can't, you know, risk the IP. Like that's something we have to have buttoned down, but yet they'll want to risk it all when it comes to advertising. They're like, oh yeah, now we'll just deal with that later. <laughs> like that's fine. You know, as though it's not, you know, an, an entire area of law with like, you know, experts that you need to bring in. Um, so my, you know, everything that I recommend is always getting legal involved right at the beginning before you even started to think about what your ad campaign will look like or what you want to say. Just when you have your product, that's when you bring in your advertising counsel because they need to understand and know what it is that you want to, you know, sell and just, just take, stop you from going down a bad path right from the beginning. Um, and also help you develop the right kind of support. There's so many times that I see companies that it's clear that they had a study or a test or something that they did not for the purposes of advertising substantiation. Perhaps it was to get some sort of FDA approval. It was part of their 510k submission. It's, you know, something that exists and they want to just run with it. They're like, aha, this is the study. And now I'm going to make claims and we have a study. Um, And they don't think about whether or not that fits with the the ultimate thing that they want to say in their advertising. And, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes you'll have evidence, it'll be good evidence, but it's not good for the purpose of claim substantiation. 
So again, you know, kind of having counsel involved from the beginning is important because maybe you only, you know, need to do a small study to prove your equivalence to the FDA because it's such a product that's been in the market and you just need to, you know, do something kind of small to, uh, you know, to support your application, but you want to make a big, broad claim um, afterwards, you know, that small study might not be sufficient. You know, you might need to bulk it up if you're going to then use that same study in the future. Or, you know, if you want to say something that's outside of the, you know, kind of constrictions of what your um, 510k says, then, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe add it in right then, you know, do a little extra and do that up front rather than later on you are trying to make a claim and it's like, oh, if we had just asked them, you know, one more question or just put in a little bit more into the original study, then we would be in much better footing. So I always say, start with (laughs) counsel. If you can't do that, you know, if your resources are limited or you just didn't have it at the beginning, um, then you want to have bring in counsel and counsel that understands advertising law. We've had Mm -hmm. um, small companies come before us and say, you know, well, I signed up for alerts from the Federal Trade Commission. So I thought I had everything covered, you know, you know, I'm getting the news bulletins and, and that's probably enough. No, you need counsel that specifically understands marketing law, especially if you're going to do an aggressive marketing campaign. And then have them meet with your research teams, meet with your development teams, meet with every stakeholder that kind of touches on something that's important to your marketing campaign and define the bounds of risk. You know, kind of have everybody understand what's low risk and that's probably fine and, you know, doesn't need eyes and what's high risk and whether it's, you know, highlighting certain words, highlighting certain visuals, um, you know, saying like, as long as you say these words and you don't put a, you know, beating heart in the background, you're probably fine. But if you start, you know, if you want to, you know, add somebody, you know, having a heart attack, then you got to call us. We got to, you know, we got to look over that a little closer. And so, you know, kind of having everybody on the same page in terms of what is risky and where the lines for, yeah, this is probably going to be fine to get somebody on the phone right now. If you want to do that, you know, I think that is the best plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, You bring up some great points about level of risk. Uh, Two things that struck me that you said. One was when to bring in counsel, right, to think about it, which is at the very beginning of this, uh, of the product, before preclinical studies, before bench studies, before you're starting to create and build evidence that can also support advertising, marketing, you know, claims in general, and, um, and certainly clinical studies, right? They're, yeah. you know, it's a great point that it's very easy when you're putting the protocols together to add in a couple of kind of tertiary endpoints, mm-hmm. and even some that like continue beyond potentially the, the end of the primary endpoints, right? Yeah. But allow you to collect data about 
even like health economics, right? Claim substantiation. Uh, so that when you, because the whole point of building a startup is to kind of do well, right? To do well from the standpoint of the people you're serving, the consumers, mm-hmm. patients, healthcare consumers you're serving, uh, but also to do well from a company perspective, right? And so uh, it becomes so important, as you were saying, to kind of start with the end in mind. Mm-hmm. Like, where are we trying to go? What are we trying to say at the end of this? Therefore, what should we be doing very early on? Mm-hmm. to think about this and to build it in, you know, I've, uh, the quality, it makes me think of quality systems and, and this is, you know, a couple decades old, but they shifted from this idea of inspect out, inspect in quality, right. Inspect out all the defects to like build in the quality along the way, yeah. like all these different checkpoints. And I think claims are the same way, right? You yep. want to start at the beginning. You want to think about what the process is going to look like. And you want to build in these proof points that you're going to need eventually to say what you want to say to drive the revenue you've told your investors you're going to have. Yep. Um, and, and really thinking through that kind of reasonable basis. So really super important information. And the cost, I think... You know, I've been in enough startups. Everyone's always like, don't call the general counsel. They're $750 an hour, you know, <laughs> or send them an email because that's usually like 15 minutes of time we get billed, right? There are all these like, but what, what's the, you know, kind of opportunity cost of not having people weigh, you know, proper counsel weigh in at the beginning on what you need, you're going to need at the end? What do you lose on the end if you didn't think about it from the start? Exactly. So I think that, you know, that makes $750 or whatever the going rate for whomever is at this point seem pretty paltry. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> at the end of the day. So I think all, yeah, great, great points. Um, what are, I know we started this, one of your answers was uh, you brought in this example of emojis. And I'm wondering if you could share what I've always found so interesting about Law is that there is this difference between what's on the books, right? Like you have to wear shoes because you might burn your foot on a brake pedal and no one's like repealed those things because no one cares anymore. And enforcement, right? No one's enforcing that. So laws, laws, the way I've usually put it is that laws and their enforcement is a little bit like interpreting, you know, pick your, pick your tome of choice, the Bible, the Torah, the Quran, right? The interpretation changes and therefore the enforcement changes. And so can you talk a little bit about what some of the things are that are kind of bubbling up the last few years that we really, that we need to be thinking about that we may not have historically thought about as relates to claims? Right. So um, one thing that's been, I think, on a lot of people's minds because it's just everywhere so uh, much are environmental, social, and corporate government governance statements, mm-hmm. um, just because we are in this, this space of everyone wants their company to be associated with social good, whether it's be, being environmentally friendly or behind s- certain social movements or, you know, kind of the governance of their company. And um, 
I think those used to be something that, you know, if you posted it on your website, then and somebody bothered to look it up, you know, that's fine. Like, <laughs> no, but, you know, just, you know, a very dedicated consumer is like, oh, I want to know more about the company. And they go and find that. And that's, that's mm-hmm. good. Um, now we are having, you know, entire ad campaigns that are, uh, focused around these policies about these statements Mm. of what a company stands for or what they are doing. And so I think that's something to be thinking about because if you're just saying that, you know, we want to do good in the world and we strive to, you know, have a small impact. Okay. You know, those are the kind of fluffy statements that of, of corporate pride that, you know, we, we've come to know and love. Um, but if you are making very objective statements and telling consumers, you know, not only is our product effective, but we are reducing carbon emissions by 50%. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you might need some evidence that you're doing that, especially if you're saying, you know, in a year, we're going to, you know, uh, change to only using glass containers and, you know, that's that are 100% recyclable. Um, don't think that in a year, you know, you haven't met that goal. Uh, <laughs> nobody's paying attention because regulators and, you know, other bodies are looking at those things now. You know, you made me a promise last year and I switched to using your product because of that. Have you done the thing that you said you were going to do or, you know, otherwise it's kind of a, it's a bait and switch, you know, you've gotten me on board and then you haven't um, fulfilled your promise. So that's definitely um, something to be looking at. Um, I think the continued evolution of social media advertising is always something to be paying attention to because that's where you most visibly see kind of the, you know, kind of trying to apply the old, you know, rules to something new, you know, what, what does it mean to make a disclosure like in a, you know, 15 second video, like, where do you put it? Where are people seeing it? What's happening? You know, and, and, you know, do you need one? Like, when, when is it obvious that this is part of a marketing campaign? Or, you know, when might a consumer think like, oh, this person that I follow just really likes this product, you know, that's always Mm -hmm. going to be a really hard place to um, make sure you're compliant. And, you know, I love the people, you know, both at the (laughs) Food and Drug Administration and the Federal Trade Commission, but they there's there's some slowness with picking up on new technologies and and making sure that their guidance is up to date. And so you really have to really sit down with your team and and think about these things and think about, you know, again, it doesn't have to be perfect, but um, you've reasonably tried. You've, you know, tried to tag, you know, the company in the video to make sure people understand, you know, that there's a relationship here and you've tried to make it clear um, when something is sponsored. And so I think that's always going to be, you know, a, a little bit difficult. Um, the final thing I, I think about is consumer reviews, because it's really interesting. Those are just 
continuing to be more and more important. And it used to be that, um, you know, the, the issue was just highlighting, um, you know, one person who had an out of the box, you know, result from, from your product and, and, you know, people not understanding that everybody's not going to have the same results. Now there are all these nuanced issues of, you know, again, you want to put together um, a bunch of reviews and, and are you giving a fair and balanced uh, view of what people are saying? Are you only highlighting the good ones? Are you using um, a testimonial from somebody who had a really great result and also slipped in that it, you know, cured their condition. (laughs) And, you know, you have to, you know, make sure, hey, if they're saying it and you're using it to, um, you know, to, to advertise for your product, you know, is that something you would have been able to say on your own? Because you can't just say, well, oh, that guy said it. I didn't say it. You know, you have to make sure if you're using it, you have a basis for it. And that gets really, really tricky in the healthcare space. We, um, you know, have looked at and considered, you know, for example, um, some of the hospital advertising that we're seeing in the marketplace, Mm. which is, you know, kind of a fairly new thing. You had to kind of word of mouth know which hospital to go for certain specialties. And now you have ads saying like, hey, we helped this person beat the odds. And, you know, what is that saying to the consumer? You know, what is that, you know, the consumer being like anybody who has a, a say in where they go for their health care? Um, you know, what's that saying? You know, how do you support that? Like, they may have the only surgeon who can do a certain kind of uh, procedure. But, you know, mm-hmm. does that mean it's going to work for everybody? Should you choose that surgeon because of that? Should you choose that hospital? You know, it gets really tricky. Um, so those are, again, you know, what kind of claims you're making and, and can you back them up? Um, always important. Yeah, I think you cover a lot of great topics. <laughs> so <laughs> hospital advertising and like cherry, what I've heard referred to as like cherry picking, like testimonials. Um, and, you know, is that re- representative of a broader range of people? Uh, is that true for a broader range of people? It's a little. It used to be put to me that, you know, if you say your product does certain things, but you're showing visuals of people like running through fields of daisies, you know, white haired people run through fields of daisies. Like, is that how the majority of the people experience life after (laughs) your procedure? And if not, maybe you're making claims visually that you ought to rethink, like what's realistic, Um, what's kind of normative. and your point about reviews is really critical because people want to highlight those reviews, right? Mm-hmm. I see so many articles now that are, I'm just shocked. They're like <laughs> reviews of reviews. Yeah. They're like the top, whatever reviewed, you know, they pick some category on Amazon, right? And then they like cherry pick a review of like one person. Um, I see tweets like that. And it seems so out of context, right? right? So how do you do that in a thoughtful way? Do you put forth a series that you feel is, you know, that you can document 
document and prove, have evidence, mm-hmm. is more kind of normative? Um, and how do you let people know? Yeah. How do you let people know that? Right. Um, and I think those are great. Those are great things. Kind of uh, one of my last questions. I know a lot of people who think, hey, I can post the really very best testimonial from a patient or from, you know, a consumer or a buyer. Uh, and as long as I have a big disclaimer that this is not like an average result, that that's sufficient. Um, I'd be curious as to your thoughts on that and how you think through that. So, it, I mean, I think that what's important is that anytime you're using a testimonial with a not average experience, you have to also say, not just that this isn't the average experience, but you have to know what the average experience is and make sure that is also clear. And so if there is something that's just so kind of outrageous that you're saying, you know, using this testimonial and they had such a far from normal experience and you're trying to say, okay, you know, this person, you know, was able to completely, you know, regain their mobility, but the average person only has minor changes. There's no Mm -hmm. disclosure that's going to, you know, solve that. It's, it's, there's always going to be a problem there. Um, If it's something where they're like a little bit out of bounds and you're like, okay, well, they had excellent mobility, but most people kind of have average to excellent mobility. Okay. That's, that's a different Mm -hmm. story. But if you are really highlighting and focused on someone who is in the, you know, 1% of the, you know, miraculous people that have great effectiveness with your product, that's probably always going to be a problem. You know, it's, it's just going to, again, it's kind of the, the overall context. It's, it's, you know, if you put it in the fine print, but everything else about your ad and your advertising kind of says, oh, this is normal, um, you know, the consumer is just going to not really get it. And and that's that's why you're doing it. <laughs> you know, you want people to think mm-hmm. that this is the norm. And so you really just have to really rethink, you know, kind of what you're putting out there. Um and I wanted to say one more thing that I, I thought of. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, please. Um, just uh, in terms of, I talked a lot about like the consumer, and sometimes that's kind of just taken as the the layperson consumer, like the end um, person that's going to get you know a certain benefit. But I think it's important, especially in the healthcare space, to remember that professionals and medical professionals are consumers, and they also deserve to have truthful advertising. Um, I think that gets lost sometimes because we do uh, look at advertising that's aimed at medical professionals and and, uh, various healthcare professionals. And sometimes the argument that we get is, oh, it's fine if we don't completely explain this claim or, you know, or if this seems, you know, a little bit uh, misleading because, medical professionals, they're going to get it, or they're going to go read the article. They're not just going to look at this one chart that says that, you know, everything is great. They're going to want to, you know, dig into it. And 
that's not good enough. You know, you can't just say, oh, the doctor will, you know, read the rest of this study and they'll get all the caveats that come with this evidence or, you know, and an ophthalmologist will understand that, you know, when we say, you know, something about a, a contact a contact lens um, being the most moist or retaining moisture, like they'll understand what that means. And, and you know, just leave it at that for something that might otherwise be misleading. Um, no matter who you're advertising to, the information that is necessary to understand the claim and for it to be truthful needs to be in the advertising. No one should have to go do research to make sure like they get it. There's no like, huh, I wonder what they mean by that. Let me, you know, look up this underlying study. That's not how advertising works. You have to be able to understand it no matter whether you're just somebody shopping in a pharmacy or you're a doctor that's, you know, looking at, um, you know, something that they might prescribe to their patients. It's if you're advertising, you have the burden of making sure your audience understands your claims and your claims are truthful. I yeah, great, great, great points about making sure you understand your audience, that you're speaking truth. And I sometimes I think about it like informed consent, right? Informed consent doesn't give you the best possible outcome of the operation. Mm-hmm. It says you can die, you can suffer these horrible things. <laughs> like it is, it is completely laid out, all potential outcomes of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think that's the, you know, that's the right bar is truth, right? Yes. And, and truth as can be understood by multiple people. And you mentioned before, fair and balanced. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of med device, I, I've had the experience running marketing and having people push back to me. And say we don't, we're not, we don't, we're not held to fair and balance. We're not pharma, and I'm like, we're held to fair and balance because we're human beings who want to do the morally like right thing, and we want to speak truth. And truth means the whole truth and transparency and all those other words that like, people are using these days to talk about that idea. You know, transparency to talk about the idea of being um, forthcoming, right? And uh, so I. I really, I really appreciate you bringing all those kind of ideas and explaining um, about how we should be thinking about things, what we need to be doing better, where advertising is evolving. Uh, are there what advice? Last couple of questions. What advice would? Are there any questions I haven't asked you that you were hoping I would ask? Um, I was just thinking about. Uh, uh, startups that are doing something completely brand new, um, mm. because that's also some place that I see companies getting into a lot of trouble where they don't know for sure, you know, that their product is going to be effective. And so they do a study to test things out that maybe, you know, is based on a hypothesis. They're like, uh, we think that this is going to have this effect in this population. Let's, you know, do this, this first of its kind study. And it has great results, um, you know, and, and they're just super excited. They're like, okay, now we've got a study. Let, let, let's get some claims in the market. And they mm-hmm. haven't 
again, gone back and thought about the fact that they are first of their kind. And when we see so many copies that it's, they literally just have the one study, you know, that's never been done before. And because they were testing out a hypothesis, they maybe didn't do everything that you would expect in a clinical study to support an advertising claim. Like, for example, maybe it wasn't double blinded because they were like, we don't have anything to test it against right now. <laughs> we're just, you know, we're just want to see what happens when these people use this product or um, mm-hmm. they, uh, the, um, they didn't have a plus, they didn't have a placebo or, you know, they just gave people, you know, again, the marked product or, or whatever. And so they had a really great result, but there are some of these, you know, kind of markers of, of clinical evidence that, you know, could be problematic. And so they want to kind of get claims into the marketplace, but there's going to be issues there when you have nothing else to kind of support your efficacy, except for this one study that you really did for a different purpose. You you did to test your hypothesis, not to support advertising claims. And so I think that there is, you know, just a, a admonishment to, you know, you want to get out there, but be really clear with what your level of evidence says, you know, just say Mm -hmm. that it's the first of its kind, or, you know, kind of put out there that like, okay, you know, encouraging research or emerging research says X, Y, Z. There's always kind of this, I, I see this fight with people wanting to be like, no, 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 it was a great study. Like we have it. (laughs) Don't make us, you know, back down. Like this is, this is what we were hoping for. Um, And that's great. Mm -hmm. And you should definitely have complete confidence in your product. But if you get out ahead of your science, again, it kind of undermines, you know, your, your viability and your reliability. If a regular, if you catch the attention of a regulator, because if you get in trouble right at the beginning, when, you know, you could have just made those softer claims and wait, you know, six months for you to get your next study complete. Hey, you know, that, that amount of time, is going to be irreplaceable, again, if you take some sort of a hit to your brand equity. So I just, you know, always want to say, you know, if you are doing something that's just a slight variation, a good and important variation, but a slight variation on something else that you can at least pull in some third party studies and say, hey, we've got a whole bunch of evidence that kind of supports where we're going. And and this one study just adds to it. But if you're in a completely new area doing something with a product that's never been done before, you're going to have to, you know, kind of really, you know, be very careful about what you say, especially in, you know, the health space. Great, great points about being clear about what the research is right? And, and what it's making, you know, what it's not, Yeah, right? It's not a randomized perspective, multi-center, you know, 10,000 patient study. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you said it's emerging, it's early data, it's, you know, it, yeah, trending, you know, the, mm-hmm. the trend looks good, the, you know, things that make it clear that it's not definitive, right? right? Yeah. But that it's pointing in the direction we all hope. Exactly. So, and I, 
I think sometimes people forget that that it's important to remember that that transparency builds credibility and builds what you keep bringing, what you keep uh, servicing, which is brand equity. That's what people want to trust you. People want to find you credible. And I think the more forthcoming and transparent you are about what you have and what you don't have can allow that to can allow that to happen as well. So uh, last question to close us out. If you had any advice for, let's say someone just got like, you, you know, got their JD at Georgetown like you did and they're straight out and they're like, hey, this advertising and compliance space looks really interesting. What kind of advice would you give them? Um, I would say just read everything that you can coming out of the uh, Food and Drug Administration and the FTC on what they're looking at. Um, you know, because although it takes them a while to catch on, you know, they their guidance is always really on point in terms of what the agency is looking at and what the new next big thing is going to be in terms of, um, you know, kind of where they're focusing their energy. You know, mm. there's always kind of these big batches of warning letters or, you know, advisory letters that come out and you're like, aha, like this is where they're going. And so just pay, you know, even if there's not, you know, these big cases being resolved, just look at, closing letters from the FTC that maybe they didn't open an investigation, but they kind of looked into something and they were wondering about um, advertising for a particular issue. And maybe the company was able to resolve it. Um, and that happens more quickly than if they have to open an entire investigation. So kind of look at what they've been looking at. And I, you know, the FDA warning letters, they're always a great resource and not just the ones that come from headquarters, but, you know, from different regions to say, you know, what are the things that are, you know, catching their attention and what are the claims that are out in the marketplace that are, you know, kind of still on the radar of these agencies. I think, um, you know, being on the forefront, oh, sorry. And also class actions. Um, they are wow. sometimes a huge nuisance. <laughs> and sometimes you see, you know, class actions being filed and you're like, okay, nobody would have believed that. But, you know, there are also within that, you know, kind of an evidence of trends, evidence of what words are hot button words. And even if it is a ridiculous nuisance class action, um, you that's part of your risk analysis. Like, hey, what is it? you know, worth to make this claim, if you know that you're going to have to, you know, at least show up to court to argue that this is ridiculous and, and wait for the, you know, court to dismiss it, you know, that there's a cost that comes with that. And so that's going to be part of counseling, you know, hey, let's not use those words, um, unless we really have to, because it just might, you know, set off a Google alert for some, <laughs> you know, attorney who's not scrupulous, not like any of us, um, who, you know, just wants to make their client a quick buck. So um, mm -hmm. I, I think that would be a good starting place. 
Yeah, I, I, I love that kind of last kind of closing comment because sometimes marketing people forget about the SEC. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> class actions and all that wrapped up right in the investor thing and what you yeah. touched on earlier in our conversation about making promises right yeah. around kind of this environmental, social kind of governance, right, space and doing the right thing and making promises and are we following through on that and being clear about that. So I think a lot for uh, marketers and legal folks and uh, regulatory compliance folks to be thinking about to kind of stay in the boundaries as startups. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be bold, but be thoughtful about it. Absolutely. Transparent about what you're doing. So I just want to thank you so much for spending the time today to talk through this. I know it's going to be hugely valuable to open people's eyes to not just think about FDA warning letters, but also the role FTC plays, SEC, um, and what we're saying and how we should say it in a way that's more kind of truthful and fair and balanced and appropriate. So thank you for having me. So much fun. That's it for Message Engineer. We'll see you next time on The Message Engineer. 